There's a remarkable documentary uh, called As We Forgive, and it was uh, done by an American lady called Laura Hinson. And I want to show you uh, the video trailer of this movie. It deals with attempts to bring reconciliation in post-genocidal Rwanda. Now, within this trailer, there are, there's a disturbing image of human skulls. And so if you are squeamish, if you don't like that sort of thing, you might just want to avert your eyes from any of the screens, just to give you a heads-up uh, warning. So let me just play you this trailer as we start. If they tell you that a murderer Turn has volume. been released in the neighborhood, volume how up. old do you feel? And this time we weren't releasing one, we were releasing 40,000. When you consider a million people who got destroyed at the hands of their neighbors, when you get one million people dead, it becomes impossible to exert justice. The president of Rwanda passed a decision to release the perpetrators who had confessed their role in genocide. So far, 50,000 have been released. Why on earth should a survivor of the genocide in Rwanda forgive somebody who murdered either their mother or husband or brother or sister? Somebody has to tell them this painful message of forgiveness. If we let them be consumed by that ongoing bitterness and anger, it's like an acidic content in a metro container. It will eventually eat the container up. When they forgive, they get released. We have rebuilt the roads, we've rebuilt the schools, we've rebuilt the hospitals, rebuilding the hearts of people remain a big challenge. Are you crazy? Reconciliation? The one who killed your family. How do I reconcile with someone who killed my family? Forgiveness is not human, it's divine. It's still hard to come to terms with what happened in Rwanda in 2004, isn't it? Uh, that, you know, 800,000 to a million people killed in a, in a period of weeks. And uh, when there were so many killers, they couldn't do anything at the end of the day but release them back into the community. How can a society uh, receive reconciliation? What has the power to reconcile people who are facing such horrors? What has the power to deal with this issue of forgiveness? Now, Rwanda is an is a extreme version, I think, of issues that we still face here in Britain. How do we um, grant forgiveness? How do we achieve reconciliation uh, not just simply in a, in a nation, but how do we do that 
in a, in a marriage where deep hurt has been caused? How do we see forgiveness and reconciliation uh, when there are profound breakdowns within families where communication is, is practically impossible? Is it possible that we can see reconciliation and forgiveness when, when families break down? Is it possible to reconcile when, when neighbors get agitated and angry against one another? Is it, how, how do you maintain unity and love within a church? So although the Rwandan story is such an extreme one, the reality of, of the issues of forgiveness and reconciliation profoundly affect all of us in, in all of our relationships. So what does God have to say about that? Well, I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you're visiting with us, uh, we are working through this letter that Paul wrote to uh, the church in Ephesus and to church plants from Ephesus. And you'll find this on page 1176 in the church Bibles. So hopefully, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can reach across and grab a Bible, page 1176. And I'm going to read from chapter 4, verse 29. Before we do that, let's just take a moment to pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. And we thank you that you are a God who knows us in all our grief, in all our suffering. And our sin. And we thank you that you have words of life and hope, words of challenge and comfort. And we ask that you would speak now to each one of our hearts, that we may live in the light of your words. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Chapter 4, verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is God's word. What motivates the Christian life? Uh, the truth is uh, that um, Edinburgh is a lovely place, and uh, where we live, we've got lovely neighbors. I love, I love the families I mix with at the primary school, at the school gate. And in many ways, the ethics that our neighborhood have are, are, are Christian ethics. We share very similar values. But what is profoundly different is the motivation. 
What is it that motivates the Christian life? Well, for the Christian, it is a fundamentally God-centered ethic. The reason that we live the way we do is because of God. And I want to just demonstrate that from the passage that we just read here. In essence, the, the, the point of this passage, the, the call of this passage is this. Be like God. Be like God. Have a look at um, chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children children. Uh, we thought a couple of weeks ago that one of the ethics of the Christian life was this statement, become what you were born to be. That when we repent of our sins and put our trust in the Lord Jesus, uh, God makes us brand new people on the inside. He makes us born again by His Spirit. And, and you see, the ethic that follows on from that is a very linked idea. You are born again into the family of God. And so Paul calls on them to be like your loving heavenly father. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And what I want to remind you of this morning is that if you've repented of your sins and if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are dearly loved you know this? You are dearly loved by God. Kerry and Tricia Hughes are uh, great friends of Shona and I back in America. And uh, they have eight children. Uh, they adopted four children on top of their own children. And um, it was a great privilege to go to the adoption of Josiah. Josiah Josiah's mother uh, was, is uh, a drug addict and was totally incapable of caring for Josiah. And even as her, Josiah's mother was giving birth, um, her boyfriend was shooting up with heroin and poor Josiah was born actually with drug addiction, had to go through cold turkey. Hopeless life was ahead of him. And yet, Kerry and Trish, they chose to foster Josiah and it was a great day when we went with them to the courthouse in Spokane. And the judge was there, and uh, he checked that everybody understood that uh, what was about to happen was a lifelong commitment. You know, a child is not just for Christmas, you know. Uh, it's for the whole of your life. And, and, and so they made it checked with, uh, with uh, Carrie and Trish, checked with the kids. Do you understand this is a lifelong commitment? Yes. Do you want Josiah to be your son? And they said yes. You know, they've been through so many hoops as you can imagine. Of course they did at this point. Yes. And the judge pronounced uh, that he awarded that this child is no longer belonging to the state, but belonging to Carrie and Trisha as their son. And he signed the form. And what was the first thing that Carrie and Trish did? They just wrapped their arms around Josiah and hugged him. And do you know what? They've kept hugging him ever since. They love this little guy. Now that is just a beautiful picture of what has happened to each one of us who are in Christ. This is what's happened to us. God has chosen us. 
to be adopted into his family. He is, he is personally, individually, wrapped his arms of love around each one of us and said, you are mine forever. Uh, we, we thought about this uh, at the beginning of this Ephesians series. Let's just remind ourselves back in chapter uh, 1. Ephesians 1 verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. And the significance of saying sons is not that it excludes daughters. Uh, it is men and women that are adopted into his family, but the significance of sons is it is sons that inherit all the blessings of the family. And in love, God predestined that we should be adopted into his family and receive all the benefits, the spiritual benefits in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. He wraps his arms around us individually and says, you are mine. Now, I, I think we all wrestle with some of the deep questions about how God can do this before he creates everything. And, and what I want to say to us is that I don't think that this is written here to uh, cause us anxiety and to, to wrestle, you know, to cause us to wrestle with God about this deep truth. It's there for us to nestle in his love. It is there to humble us. It is there to, to assure us of God's great love for us. Now, all theology is practical. All doctrine is practical. And so here's the theology, theological reality. When we put our faith in Christ, we're adopted into his family. So what's the practical outcome of that? Well, back to chapter 4. Be imitate, chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. You're in the family. So be like your loving heavenly father. Take on the family likeness. Now, we know this is the case, don't we? Um, Tom, Tom, my son, um, has been watching World Cup rugby with me. And uh, we sit down on the sofa, he, he snuggles in, and uh, as the game starts, he asks the question, who do we want to win, Dad? <laughs> I love that. Who do we want to win, Dad? Because whoever I'm supporting, Tom is supporting. That's what happens in a family, isn't it? You, you, you take on the likeness, the character, the values, both good and bad, of your parents, of your family. The wonderful thing about Josiah is that uh, all of Carrie's biological kids have no real interest in, in one of Carrie's big interests. Not only is he a pastor, but he's a carpenter. He's a great carpenter. And, and his own kids, uh, biological kids, don't actually care about that. But Josiah, his adopted son, loves it and follows dad around everywhere. Kerry's always got a job on in the house. He's always fixing something. And uh, so if, uh, if dad has got a hammer and is hammering a nail, Josiah's looking for the other hammer and he wants the hammer. If uh, dad's screwing in something into the wall, Josiah's there and he just wants to be like his dad. Well, this is natural, isn't it? Now, this is the ethic of the Christian life. Be like God. You're in the family now. Now, that is such a big thought, isn't it? Be like God? 
hang on, my, my brain is frying at that. What, what do you mean, Paul? What does that practically look like? Well, I wanted to show us from this passage that actually uh, the, the person of God is, 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 is taught here with some very practical outcomes. If you are new to the Christian faith, let me just sort of just sketch in a very profound truth that we wrestle with as we read the Bible, and it is this, that there is only one God but he exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And often that little graphic is used to try and portray this reality of, of, of the, the, the three personhood of God and yet the profound unity of God. Every example, every illustration it does, falls horribly short. It is a great mystery, but this is the truth that the Bible has to say. Now let me show you how the triune God uh, motivates the Christian life. Uh, number one, God the Holy Spirit. Look back at chapter 4, verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So there's the command, don't, don't let any rotten speech come out of your mouth. And the, and, 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 and the question is, well, why? What, what motivates me to be careful about my speech? Well, there it is in verse uh, 30, because I do not want to grieve the Holy Spirit. That moment of conversion is the moment that the Spirit of God comes into my life. God not only saves us, but he seals us with his Holy Spirit. God puts his own presence in the life of the believer. You are sealed, it says, uh, with the Holy Spirit. And that sealing, that marking where God says, you are mine, you are part of the family, I put my spirit in you, is also God's guarantee that he's going to keep us to the end. He seals us with his spirit, guaranteeing us till the day of redemption, the day when we get our new resurrection bodies and the new heavens and the new earth. And the gift of the Spirit to each individual life is the sure sign that we belong to God and He's going to keep us until that final day. And, and because the Holy Spirit is present in the life of the believer, Paul says, don't grieve the Spirit. Now, quite logically, we see from this that the Holy Spirit is a person. Not an impersonal force. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I use electricity all the time. I switch on plugs, I switch off plugs. And you know what? I don't think electricity ever gets grieved. It's just electrons firing around. The Holy Spirit is grieved. He's a person. The Holy Spirit can experience distress and sorrow. Now, what is it that grieves the Spirit? Well, I think there's two things in Ephesians. One, this spirit is the Holy Spirit. And so when we willfully choose to sin, when we pursue impure things, the Holy Spirit is grieved at that. And secondarily in, in this book, 
the Holy Spirit is at work to unify and bring peace between believers. Have a look back at uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Do you see what the Spirit is doing? He, he is at work to keeping unity and, and, and bonding together believers in peace. And so when we do anything that undermines that unity, that seeks to drive a wedge between believers, that it seeks to disrupt that unity of God's people, the Spirit is grieved. We're working against the Spirit when we, when we act in that way. And so we saw the injunctions a couple of weeks ago. You know, if, we're, if we tell lies rather than speaking the truth, um, if, we, um, if we steal from one another, um, if we use words that tear each other apart, unwholesome words that drag down the conversation, words that will attack people and rip them apart, the Spirit is grieved at that because these are the very things that, that cause disunity and division amongst God's people. Now, um, have you ever had the experience of disappointing somebody you love? How does that feel? I mean, I love my wife. I, let me, I mean, actually, I have to tell you, I love her more than anybody else. I love my wife. And I actually take great delight in pleasing her. If I can bring her delight, I love that. And consequently, also, the thing that's the worst thing for me is if I do something that makes her recoil a bit and step back. You know in a relationship where you go, you know, it's going swimmingly, but then there's a point you think, oh, that person's withdrawn a little bit emotionally. I hate that. I hate that. And I know that she loves me, and I know that this marriage is, is, is strong. But, you know, uh, if I do something stupid, if I say something stupid, if I say something unwise, and, and I see her recoil a bit because of something dumb I've said, and, and that look of disappointment in her face, I hate that. I hate that. Now, that's just a human analogy, isn't it? The Spirit is given to the believer, sealed at the moment of conversion. It is at work to, to guarantee this end of the day of redemption. But if we love God, if we love the presence of His Spirit and the joy and the peace that He brings in our life, we need to be aware that if we pursue willfully impurity and, and pursue division within the body, that we are grieving the Spirit. And, and, and this is what motivates the believer to actually not want to do those things. In fact, to do the very things that will promote holiness and will promote unity amongst God's people because we love God and we love His Spirit at work in our lives. Secondly, God the Father. You see, if we, these verses kind of all flow, obviously. So if we, if we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God... Then what should we do? Well, verse 31. We need to get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, that's logical, isn't it? 
We don't want to grieve the Spirit. Here's some stuff we've got to get rid of. And if you notice here, there's a pattern here, isn't there? It starts on the inside. It starts on the inside with bitterness. Bitterness. That resentment inside of us. We start resenting that person. And my friends, if we, if we don't do anything about it, do you know what bitterness does? It grows. It's an acid. And it devours. It's, it's a weed, like a dandelion, that keeps firing off seeds that will grow in other places in our heart. If we allow bitterness to continue, it is an awful thing. Because what will happen if we, if, we, if we allow that bitterness to grow? Then what happens is we become angry people. We have, beneath the surface, rage. Now you, and, you know, we all know, don't we, when we're talking to someone who is angry. They might not know it. They may think they're being perfectly reasonable. You know that passive-aggressive person? And you know it. And you know one wrong move here, one wrong statement, and this person is just ready to explode. So you tiptoe around them. That, that simmering rage that, that, that results in outbursts of anger. Which actually, if there's been sufficient bitterness over, over, over a long time, then that, that, that anger will turn into slander as they start mouthing off and ripping into you. And if that continues and continues, then actually the most malicious, horrible, evil things can seem quite appropriate behavior. This is the awful downward spiral, or the sort of inside-to-outside move that can happen if we allow bitterness in our heart. Is this not exactly uh, the tragedy of Rwanda? That for years, there was this bitterness and animosity, pushing, talking of the other. It grew and it grew into the worst form of malicious behavior possible. And it starts with bitterness. So what does Paul say? Get rid of bitterness. Get rid of all bitterness. When we're aware that, um, you know, sometimes someone's done something against us and, and, they, sort of, and they don't do anything about it, and you think, oh, I'll just, I'll, just, uh, you know, I'll just write it off. I'll just put it behind me. I'm not going to make a fuss about this. But actually, it keeps coming back into your mind. It keeps troubling with you. That's a warning sign, isn't it? That's the beginning of bitterness. And if we refuse to deal with bitterness at that stage, my friends, it will eat up and destroy us, our relationships. And my friends, in a church, it will destroy a church. We must get rid of all bitterness. Uh, that's the old life that we need to put off. And so we need to live out a new life. And, and what's, what's the, 
What's the new life? Well, there it is in verse um, 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Instead of bitterness, we need to live out a life of putting on kindness. Instead of rage and anger, we should be uh, pursuing being compassionate. Instead of slander and malice, we should be forgiving one another. That's the life we should live out. Now, you say, well, why? Why? Why should I do that? Do you know how much that person has hurt me? Do you know that? Do you know the injustice that's been done to me? Do you know what, it, do you know what I've been through? How can you say that? Well, what motivates the Christian to forgive? Well, it's God the Father, isn't it? Look at verse 32. Forgiving each other just as in Christ... God forgave you. The power of the Christian life comes from staying close to the cross of Christ. Of ever living in the present reality of the gospel. Of being continually reminded how serious our sin is. How it is such a total offense to a holy God. And how gracious and merciful he has been in sending his son. And offering his son as a sacrifice in the place of sinners. How much have we been forgiven? God did that in Christ for us. What a loving, merciful, gracious, glorious Father we have. What a great God we worship. How He has forgiven us. And if you're feeling that it's been a long time since you've ever thought like that. Ask God to bring the reality of your sin back to you. To be reminded of how wretched we are apart from Christ. And then come to the sweetness of the cross of Christ and repent of our sins afresh and trust Christ and be freshly amazed at God's amazing love. Well, my friends, I, I don't know how people forgive who aren't Christians. Some manage it. But this is what motivates the Christian to forgive. To know how much we have been forgiven by God. And thirdly, we're motivated by God. The Son. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Verse 2 And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
before the creation of the world, when God conceived of this plan of salvation, it was not merely the Father sending a reluctant Son. But within the triune God, as this plan was devised, and the Father set out this plan, the Son said, I love these people. I will, I will go. Here am I. Send me. I will do your will, O God. We are motivated not only by God the Holy Spirit, by God the Father, but by God the Son and His amazing love for us. Just as Christ loved us. Again, if you're feeling your heart is hard, uh, your heart is hard, reflect on the love of Christ at the cross. That he willingly chose to come and take on human flesh in the incarnation. That he willingly put up with this life of, of poverty, of suffering, of, of rejection, of crucifixion. That he willingly took God's judgment for our sin in his body on the cross and died. Christ's love is incredible, isn't it? It is gracious. It is costly sacrifice. And God the Father was delighted in his son and delighted with this sacrifice. It was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what is the only right response, really, when we understand how much Christ loved us? Well, it is to live a life of love. It is to walk in love. Uh, this is the call of this passage. It, it, be like God and walk in love. And again, as we, as we look at these verses, just as an aside, do you, do you notice the logic of 5 verse 1? Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. So how am I to be an imitator of God? Well, live a life of love. And, and, and how do I know what it is to imitate God? Well, look at the Lord Jesus Christ, it says. If you want to know what God is like, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at God the Son in human flesh. His life of love is the example and the, and the gracious power that calls us to live a life where we walk in love like Christ. We are in the evening going through John's uh, gospel and we're in the upper room discourse. And do you recall that what Jesus says to his disciples there? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That you love one another as I have loved you, so you love one another. This is not a complicated sermon this morning. Be like God. Walk in love. Because we are part of the family, take on the family likeness. I want to show you um, a little clip from the DVD once more. 
And it is the story of one woman, Rosaria. And she was involved with a reconciliation meeting with uh, Savaria, who, well, you'll, you'll see in a moment, who was one of the killers that murdered family members of her. So let me just illustrate how this theology has dynamic power. Isn't that amazing? Did you get the point? How can I refuse to forgive when I am a forgiven sinner? Says Rosaria. So will we love one another is the question this morning. Will we love one another? Well, the answer could be no. Unforgiveness can continue. Bitterness can continue in our hearts. And, and, and my loving um, challenge and, and warning is that if we allow unforgiveness to fester in our hearts, it's just as the bishop said in that first video, it is like a corrosive acid inside a tin. It will eat away what is there. It will slowly uh, eat us up and it will harm our relationships and if it's within this body, it will harm our church. But bitterness will take us over. If you're not a Christian here today and you're thinking, actually, I am struggling with not being able to forgive and I don't have it in me to be able to forgive, what I'd say to you today is repent of your sin of the part that you've played in the breakdown of whatever that relationship is and trust in Christ. He'll forgive you your sin. He will f fill you with his Holy Spirit and, and there will be a new motivation, a new power at work in your life to live a life of love. Will you love one another? Well, if the answer is yes, my friends, how glorious this is. 
To walk in love is to walk with God. To walk with God the Father, who has loved us before the creation of the world and chosen to bring us into his family, who has enabled through the sending of his only son that our sins would be forgiven, that we could be reconciled with him, and who has put his Holy Spirit in us so that we can experience and know his love and know power for our lives. My friends, if we are walking in love, we are walking with God. Isn't that what John is saying in 1 John? And I think there is no greater evangelism and there's no greater apologetic for the gospel when people see those who are in enmity reconciled. Are you not blown away by that story? This man killed her sister and her sister's children. And yet, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, she is able to forgive him And there is a a relationship even with the killer where now he is serving and helping her in her life. That's powerful, isn't it? Doesn't that wake up the world? What else has the power to reconcile a broken nation after genocide? What else has the power to fix a a struggling marriage? What else has the power to, to help when neighbors are in conflict? What else can keep a church together? But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, is there someone that you need to talk to today? Is there someone that you need to um, talk to in this room? Uh, It's very convenient having two floors. In fact, if you really don't like someone, you can engineer that you can sit in this room and never have to look at them, let alone look them in the face. You can work a way of scuttling away without ever having to have that awkward look at that person that you are just feeling rather bitter towards. Oh, my friends. Have you been wronged to the same degree as that Rwandan woman? Have you? I doubt it. And yet she could find within the gospel sufficient reason to forgive. And I would urge you, if, if, if there is bitterness, if there's unforgiveness, if someone has asked for forgiveness and you're withholding it, that you would you would. Come before God in prayer and ask Him to soften your heart. Help Him, ask Him to, to help him, you appreciate His love more, to the love of Christ, that His Spirit would be operational in your heart, that today you could be serious and sort it out. How can I refuse to forgive when I am a forgiven sinner? Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, oh, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. Oh, Lord, we would be so lost in our own sin, in our own bitterness, 
apart from your grace. Father, we ask that you'd move freshly amongst us, that we would see the greatness of who you are and the greatness of what you've done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Empower us this day, we pray, that we may walk in love as a church and walk in love at work and walk in love in our neighborhood that we may commend this glorious gospel of reconciliation. We ask this in Christ's precious name.